Hey, y'all. Today, I am super excited to bring you a conversation that I had with Bob Glazer. Bob is the founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners. He also writes this weekly email newsletter called Friday Forward, which is, to be quite honest, one of the very few email newsletters that I subscribe to and actually read. He is someone who is really focused on helping people and teams build capacity. So he talks a lot about areas of growth, areas of personal development, and he is somebody who is doing this. He brings a lot of his ideas about capacity building, growth, and development come from the company that he runs, a company that has 180 employees. So he's someone who's sort of thinking about this not from a theoretical or academic framework, but from the real world lived experience of wanting to develop and grow great teams and great people within his business. And then he's kind of sharing those insights with the larger population. So I think that's an interesting model. It's, it's not necessarily one that I hear a lot. Bob also wrote a best-selling book called Elevate. And it's a book that came out earlier this year and one that I have really enjoyed. It's a nice little book and one that provides a nice synopsis of some great insights, information about how to pursue growth in spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and physical capacities. Those of you who um, read my book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, will, um, I think, find a lot of resonance. There's a, a lot of overlap in kind of values and ideas, but Bob certainly has his own take on how to promote growth well. So if you're looking for a fireside read this winter, it's definitely one that I would pick up, and I think it could be a nice text to accompany your New Year's planning and taking the time to outline your sort of goals and vision for the coming year. So if you um, are curious about Bob's work, you can find more about him at robertglazer.com. That's G-L-A-Z-E-R. And pick up, you know, Elevate at uh, Amazon or wherever uh, you get your books. So thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy this um, really cool conversation that I had with Bob. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So my first question for you was like really very elementary, but like what does Acceleration Partners do? What is your what does your company do in your day job? Uh, yes, my day job, uh, which is important. Um, we, we are the leading partner marketing and affiliate marketing agency in the world. So we help companies. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of digital advertising where you, know, you partner with a brand, you, you come up with a commission or the percentage on an action, and then you pay that partner only when they've delivered that action. So we help set up and grow those programs for pretty large consumer brands um, globally. But you spend a lot of time doing a lot of other things, a lot of self-development, leadership development kind of work. And I know your work largely through Friday Forward, which is your weekly email. And then, of course, your book, Elevate. Yeah. So how did you, like, how did you decide to spend so much time talking about leadership development, personal development? 
Yeah, I mean, my my roles are sort of one and the same inside and outside of the organization. You know, we've had a really great run of of growth over the last 10 years. And a lot of that has been a focus on personal and, and professional development and helping people grow holistically. In fact, Friday Forward started as really a note to my team when we were 40 people each week. And then it started to kind of go outside the company and took off a life of its own. So I, so I opened it up. You know, we encourage everyone actually internally to understand their core values, purpose, and, and figure out a way to align that. And, and you know, my core purpose is to share ideas that help people and organizations grow. So I spend a lot of my time you know, working on things that help our team elevate, build their capacity. We're a professional services business. So that's really the most important thing that we do. We have, as I said to someone this morning, I think about 95% of our team are probably in the highest role they've ever been in. And, and, and that's really been the key to our growth. When we figure out something within the business that, that works or is different or we try something new, I sort of like to crowdsource that or share that with other organizations so people can make those changes, get better outcomes, and have better businesses that help kind of raise people along with them. Because I, I truly think that... I, I hate the word win-win. It sounds so trite, but I, I really do think that is the win-win is to, to you know, grow your people to improve your business performance. You get the business benefit of that and they get all the benefits outside of that. So my, I, I'm like right now I'm spending most of the next week building up our next two day leadership program for our kind of 20 rising managers and all that curriculum. And I think when you get to the size that we're at 170 people and a full exec team, I mean, the CEO's role is really culture and strategy and, and leadership development. I try to stay out of a lot of the operational day-to-day decisions around sales and marketing and, and, and otherwise, and, and, and sort of trust the team to, to take care of that. So you've kind of used your business as this incubator for great ideas that help optimize growth and personal development. And then you've decided to share those with the broader world. Yeah, like I, I'm not an ap- academic. You know, I think there are a lot of culture people from from the world. I, I, you know, come in kind of from the academic realm. Everything that I talk about or share is something we have done that we have tested, that we have personal experience with. I think I'm able to package things into framework and, and share with other people to make it accessible to them. That's something that I that I do well. Um, but yeah, it, it it really is sort of an incubator where. I think that if, if if we can do something like we keep our sort of core business strategy, you know, we don't share that with the world. But uh, you know, a, a lot of that stuff, I, I to me, that serves a bigger value and impact I want to have if we can help improve other organizations as well. And we've we've actually tied that into the mission of our company for the next three years. So as part of our next three year vivid vision, one of the concepts that I shared with everyone was really being a teaching company, kind of similar to a teaching hospital. And that if we develop such a strong confidence in something that people want to come to learn it from us, A, like you need to know something really well to teach it, which is a good test. And B, like that's a pretty good demonstration of of our of our success in some areas. So people on the team have been excited about that. And you know, whether it's our culture team or aspects of recruiting or even marketing to, to do something well enough that other people wanna come learn it. There's some companies out there like Zingerman's Deli or you know, these others where people make the pilgrimage to go figure out what makes this business tick. I think that's that's the type of business that we would like love to build. So in your in your book, Elevate, you talk about four areas of growth, spiritual growth, 
emotional growth, intellectual growth, physical growth, or those are sort of this, these areas of competence or capacity that you like to support your team in and that you're pursuing for yourself as well. One of the things that I love about this framework is that you talk about how those four components are really integrated. And when one rises, they all rise. Which and, is, and you when know, one from falls, I, it, it act, tends to act. They all fall. It's, I, I, well, <laughs> I, it kind of acts, I could say it act as like an anchor, like physical can act as like a, an anchor or an accelerant, you know, depending on where it is. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, coming more from an ac- academic world, I'm a psychologist, so supposedly I'm supposed to talk to people about their, you know, like their feelings and their mental game. But I end up talking to people so much about sleep and nutrition and sort of the integration of all of these different components of our life. And so I think getting out of the silo and understanding that all components rise and fall together is really a great sort of contribution that your book makes. I guess I'm I'm wondering like kind of how you came to that or what were the observations that helped you realize like, oh my goodness, like when I'm not sleeping, like not only am I maybe not a pleasant person to be around, but also I'm not, I'm not awesome at my work. Like my intellectual capacity diminishes. Yeah. So I, I'm a cause and effect person. And and the story of, of Elevate is sort of an interesting one. So Friday Ford started as, I actually went to a pretty intensive leadership program I think it's now five or six years ago. Sometimes we say five years for two years. As part of that, it was about improving your morning routine and, and, and your day and sort of starting on offense and, and reading something positive. And the types of stuff we were given to read just didn't do it for me. It was a little more chicken soup for the soul or sort of rainbow and unicorn stuff. And and so I decided I'd, I'd, I'd write something and I'd share it with my team because I had sort of these stories and quotes. And, and that was originally this Friday inspiration note, which became Friday Forward. Over those next four years of writing Friday Forward, you know, over 100,000 people signed up all around the world. My personal and professional life went to sort of entirely new heights and our, and our business went to entirely new heights. And I actually went to write this compilation book of, of kind of 52 Friday Forward stories. And I took it around to a bunch of agents and they all said, you know, pretty resoundingly interesting, but... No one, and the audience wasn't as big at that time. No one really likes compilation stories. And, and eventually I took it to the, the, the person who came my agent and he said the same thing. He said, but I think you have a story behind this. And so what happened was I, I sort of stepped back and, and I was like, all right, well, what is it that we're, what am I doing personally? What is it that we've been doing as an organization to build people up holistically, capacity building? We had just started using that term around kind of capacity and growing people's capacity. And then why are these emails resonating with like total strangers, getting them to make changes in their lives, writing me all these kind of crazy things from from all over the world? And it was like a year process of kind of writing and noting and trying to put a framework. And I realized it was actually all the same thing and that... You know, what I had done was really around these areas of capacity building. Our strategy as a company was around these four areas of capacity building. And I was able to actually even re-taxonomize all the Friday forwards as they really covered sort of one or more of these areas. So it was a lot of trial and error. Some of these terms were used in the context of energy. I also looked at what are these high achievers and all these people I really kind of see in these disciplines doing well. And I sort of had the themes. It's kind of like your core values, but I, did, I didn't have the labels. And after a lot of back and forth and discussion, originally it was six or seven and usually less is more. When I got to these, I was kind of like, this is it. Like These underline all the aspects of, of self-improvement that I have seen out there 
they, they, they interconnect. Like I am now I can play all kinds of games with them. Like what happens if this one's high or this one's low, or you don't have this one, like what it looks like. And, and so it all came together over kind of a couple year process of, of thinking through that. But so we've even like our leadership training and the stuff that we do at our company now, we're kind of revolve around these principles. I think we always were like, we were always helping people figure out, Hey, we wanted them to be healthier and figure out their direction and, and learn. We just never didn't have the labels to call it that. Now you have language. Yeah. Now we have language. And that's always helped me. You know, you read some book and, or like the tipping point or something, you're like, I knew these things, but like, it just delivers it all in a package and a framework that makes it accessible. And I, you know, I don't have like a, an actual assessment or anything uh, built. I mean, I've worked on one, but I, I think it's pretty clear for people when they look in these realms to, to see where they're, where they're doing well and where they need still need some work. Yeah, one of the, the labels or the languaging that I was surprised to see you use is the term spiritual, spiritual development, spiritual capacity. And of course, people have all kinds it is of... not religious. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and from reading your book, that's clear. Some other um, words I might use for what I think you're describing is sort of existential or selfhood or inner life. It's soulfulness. None of them are great terms. Like they're, they're not, right, none of them are perfect. Yeah. There was not, there was not an easy term or, or, you know, if I would have said like, if I was going for like a not labely, I'd be like who you are and what you want. Right. I mean, that's sort of the thing, but yeah, it is, that was the hardest I think. And particularly cause I know there are some, you know, how people react to certain religious connotations, but I think when they understand the definition, it, it, it's clear kind of what, what I mean in that, in that respect. Yeah, and, and you talk a lot about values in the context of spiritual development. So what what's important to you? What distinguishes, you know, the decisions that you make based on your sort of inner compass? Yeah, and I think I think the most important thing that most people could do in their life is to be clearly articulate their core values. It is a matter of discovery or actualization. I believe they're there. They're often from formative things in our childhood or our lifetime or otherwise. And the thing is, we know when we like hit the boundaries, right? It, it doesn't feel right. We just can't articulate it. We don't have the vocabulary. It's like driving kind of a car in a dark tunnel and you hit a wall and you hear the car scrape and you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. So you, you pull back off. But if you turn on the lights and, and, and painted some lines, you, you would get through that tunnel a lot more unscathed. And, and I, I think most people can't do this. And when we've done this with our leaders and when they worked on it, I think their decision-making, everything in their life just makes a lot more sense. They understand why they do what they do, the types of people they want to gravitate towards, the types of people they will not <laughs> interact well with. What you say yes to, what you say no to. Yeah, and, and I, I just can't think of a better... When you talk about things like who you want you know, to become your partner, where you want to live, what kind of company you want to work for. I mean, these are all decisions that if you can't make the connections on the core values, you're very likely to make a, a, a poor choice. Well, how would you articulate your personal core values, if I could, if I could ask you? Yeah, sure. I'm, 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 I'm pretty public with them because they align to a lot of what I do. And again, why I'm on this podcast and why I wrote the book and also a lot of our, specifically some of our company policies. So mine are uh, health and vitality, find a better way and share it, self-reliance, respectful authenticity and long-term orientation. I am better as an individual when I'm doing those things. I'm a better leader when I'm serving those things. I'm, I'm definitely a better parent. Like one of the things I've noticed is like, 
when I'm doing things with my kids related to one or more of those values, I'm much more engaged and able to kind of be a better parent. And I've kind of given myself permission to not do the things that I don't do well as a parent. They don't align. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm just not going to pretend that I like back to school night. I always hated school. Like I couldn't sit through class. Like I, I'm a much more experiential learner. And like, so I just, it's not my priority to sit through the same speech and just zone out and (laughs) pretend to not be in the classroom. I've just sort of given up on the guilt to that and be like, I'd rather do what I did the other night with my daughter who I'm teaching her to to drive right now. And it was snowing. And I said, look, the first time it snows, like we're going to learn. And we went to a parking lot and we practiced skidding and all kinds of stuff in a parking lot. And, you know, we both had like an amazing time and that was a much more meaningful experience, but better than back to school night, better than back to school night. But for me, that's about, kind of learning and teaching and, and, and that self-reliance and being, being comfortable and going out in the snow driving. And she was literally hesitant, but then she, she, she enjoyed it. Yeah. It's like th- that long-term perspective too, of like, you, you need to learn that as you live in Massachusetts, like <laughs> a skill you're required to have. Right. I said, look, I mean, your mom's not going to let you go out if it's snowing, but you might be at someone's house an hour away. It snows, you know, and, and if you're paranoid and have never been out there in the snow, then you won't want to do it. And it's interesting, you know, three or four times in, she could pull herself out of a, out of, out of a skid. And ideally you'd want to practice that before you get in that in the real world. Right. Have your values shifted over the years? Like, have you noticed them shift with different like phases of your life or have these been really consistent across as long as you've been tracking them at least? So, so one of the discovery points for me was my parents moved out of my house, uh, uh, my childhood home a year ago. My mom, who saved everything, came over with a box and was like, here's all your stuff. Like, we don't want it. Like, you can, <laughs> throw, it, you can throw it out. Or, and I went and read every report card from like kindergarten and through college. And, and it's all there and very consistent. I mean, there was a report written for me at five years old that I changed some words about his like buddies to his coworkers. And I shared it with our company and told the people it was a 360 review. And, and it was really funny. Like everyone was like, everyone yeah, was, yeah. yeah, that's dead on. And, and then, and then I showed them that it was actually written when I was five years old. Yeah. And it was interesting, the respectful authenticity. They were like, look, he's very direct with it, with his peers. And they're not really ready to hear that. Well, we've kind of made being like direct like, but authentic, like a hallmark of our, our culture and kind of telling people the truth, but being respectful. Now, clearly like five-year-olds probably, you know, aren't as, aren't as good at being on the receiving end of that. But I, I've leaned into those things. So I, I think that it depends. You can have formative experiences at different parts of your life. I think, I, I think I've been pretty similar. And that's why I say I think it is a process of self-actualization. I think these things are there. Uh, they might happen because of, you know, major events in your life or altered um, and you might take different priorities. But for a lot of them, it's just being able to put the words to something that you feel like. One of the tests that I use with people and I've come up with on if they have one of their core values correct, for some reason, this just works is to sort of envision someone who embodies the opposite of that. And you're like standing there talking to them at a party and like, how do you feel? And it's like, I need to get away from this person, you know, like as fast as I can. Now, knowing that is actually really helpful, right? You know, oh, like I'm someone who really, I'm not saying to me, like I'm someone who really values gratitude and I'm talking to a trust fund baby who's complaining that 
their allowance was down from 5,000 to 4,000 a month, right? If, if I have that awareness of my value and who they are, I'm like, oh, this is why that's happening. If not, you're just like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. But it's kind of the test because it really is the like, when you're put of someone who's the, the kind of anti-value that you get that feeling and the same feeling when you're working on something that's not aligned with your values or, or otherwise. Yeah, misalignment, you know, it gets triggered within our within our physiological bodies. Like we get sort of squirmy and uncomfortable. But if we don't have language to understand what's happening, then yeah, we can sort of live out this script of why am I so discontent or why am I unhappy when really we're we're just misaligned. And that's a fairly solvable problem. That's why I think spiritual capacity goes first in 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 this hierarchy, because I think in order to get better at your intellectual capacity, your physical, whatever, if you know what you want and why you want it, then you're much more likely to get better on how you want to get there and maintain your health to get it and maintain your relationships around that. I think, as I talked about sort of the, some of the kind of situations when one's missing, I think there are a lot of people out there who are very low spiritual capacity, but high intellectual, physical, and emotional. And what they're doing is achieving at a super high level something that gives them no... <laughs> satisfaction or is totally misaligned. They're like, Oh, I did it. I'm, I'm the CEO. I'm rich, all this stuff. And I'm absolutely miserable. Like what I really want is to be like in the quiet of the woods and writing stories. So they did a really good job executing on someone else's life plan for them. Just not, not what they want. I was going to ask you that. I had a note to ask you that question is which of those four areas of capacity do you think is easiest to overlook? And my, my hunch, my hypothesis was that it would be that spiritual capacity. And it sounds like that's something that you've observed too. Yeah, because I actually think your long-term value, your long-term goals, when you get into intellectual capacity and your goals and your long-term goals, they should be set to fill your values, right? I, so, so that's how you get that true alignment. So if I, if I achieve this 10-year goal, it, it actually fulfills a core value of mine. Therefore, all the things that I'm working on are sort of in service of the value. I've always believed in this sort of alignment theory for companies or otherwise. It's like everyone's on the same page at the top. You align the activities, you get those things done. And I used to be really good at goal setting, but all the goals were all arbitrary. And I think you know if you looked at some of my long-term goals, there, there's a lot of alignment across you know, multiple ones of the core values so that I don't have that hollow feeling of like, oh, I did it. And oh, it doesn't feel very good. Right. You have the feeling of like, I did it. And it's deeply meaningful to me because it's so aligned with how I want to be spending my energy in the world. And it carries on, right? I, I've tried to move towards goals that are sort of perpetual, right? Like uh, getting Elevate out and making it a best-selling book, like that is a goal in itself. But the bigger goal is the impact that capacity building has on other people. That kind of aligns to my finding you know, a better way and sharing it. It's the same thing I always wonder about Olympic athletes. Like if you spend your whole life on the thing and you get it and then it's over... Like it's, I, I try to find goals that you achieve at a level or get to something that then has that sustainment to it. Where you can keep, keep achieving there. Yeah, you can, you can keep achieving it um, and you can keep enjoying it. It's not like this moment in time that then is gone because that's, that's the sort of prom king and queen syndrome where that's, that's still the best day of your life and you're 40 years old, then that's probably a problem. Right, that's <laughs> kind of an unfortunate story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the stories that you wrote about in your in your book really caught my attention. I have a feeling I know which one's going to be, but yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 I'm sure you do. We talk a lot about these like moments where we experience our own 
our own brokenness or our own sort of limits. And you wrote in your book about this, like really very serious panic attack that you had that sounded like ended up in an, an, an ambulance ride and a pretty scary experience. How did that shape you? Like, how did you sort of see yourself differently on the other side of a panic attack that serious? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really believed I was dead and sort of experiencing the last few seconds of my life and was kind of in, in disbelief around that. I, I think, and, and, and obviously go through cycles where we tend to get more stress and work, but I, but I think for me, that was an important reminder of, of sort of stepping back, you know, taking care of my physical health, working on sort of the more holistic picture. I, I definitely started running more and getting back to, to yoga and, and realized that I had just sort of taken it too far. Um, I feel like lucky. I feel like I got a free pass and I got a free warning. I think a lot of people don't have that, right? They have the actual heart attack that day or they have something and then uh, it, it's never the same. So I, I mean, I, I still, as I, I still have that bracelet right up on my desk uh, above here as a, as a reminder of sort of, you know, what's important and matters. And, you know, my son was in the room that day and I really, he was young, but I just, I, I remember being like, I really can't believe this is how I'm going to die. So yeah. And then he's going to hear this story for years. So yeah, that was, that was sobering to, to say the least. You know, I work with a lot of professionals, a lot of entrepreneurs who, who battle anxiety pretty significantly. And obviously caring for the, the physical body is one of the best ways that we can help move some of that anxious energy through our selves and out of our bodies. It's a great anxiety management tool. What are some of the other things that you have found that have been helpful to you in keeping your anxiety in check, even as you are also pushing yourself and exploring the edges of your own growth? Yeah, I, I try to, uh, there are a couple of things. I think gratitude, focusing on what you're grateful for. I think breaks and and, and meditation and just I'll put breaks in my calendars, like go for a walk, go walk the dog, you know, get outside, just just sort of having to pull off the the treadmill. I think again, focusing on what is in, important. A lot of entrepreneurs and myself like tend to have like an obsessive personality about whatever it is we're trying to solve now. Like if I can't figure out the light bulb, like it's like, all right, I'm not going to bed until I figure out the light bulb, or like everyone leave me alone. I'm trying to figure out the light bulb. Like it's just it's just this desire to solve the problem. Like, like joke around, like last night I should have gone to bed earlier, but I was, I had, there was actually a problem with one of our light switches and I was using the software to try to figure out which one it was. And I was like determined to solve the problem. I, I think stepping back and being like, yeah, you know what? This just isn't <laughs> that important because we tend to throw ourselves into things 120%. And some perspective is healthy there. Like strategic quitting. It sounds, you know, like I'm going to yeah. walk away from this light switch right now and like not let myself be bothered by this. Yeah. In fact, my sons were like, do you want to come play football in the snow and the freezing cold? It was something earlier in the day. I was like, God, I don't really want to. But yes, because like whatever I'm working on is just not as important. And like, let's go play football in the in the snow. So I do find that I, and I think it's, I just get this tunnel vision around whatever it is that I'm trying to solve, like just kind of solving it, not wanting to be interrupted. And I, that's what we do, right? We solve problems, but sometimes it's not. I talked about in the book, I think one of the things about resilience, and there's a great quote by uh, Elizabeth Edwards around kind of deciding what you want to be resilient about and not, right? If it doesn't, if it, if it really matters, like fight for it. If it doesn't matter, like don't be resilient. <laughs> Let it, like some of us have to be not be resilient. Like if there's a relationship that doesn't matter in my life, that's causing me stress, like 
I just got to let it go. Don't have to be resilient about it. I feel like this is one of those things in which we're sort of set up to fail because a lot of us, you know, I grew up with this sense of like, no, you're not a quitter. Like, don't quit. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And it's like, actually, no. I think the the wisdom and the the really successful people that I that I know, especially people who manage their anxiety well, are people who give up often and with good reason. And they're really strategic about what they give up and what they don't. So it's not that you give up everything, right? And what they say no to, right? It's just it's not it's not important to me. There's no reason to characterologically take on everything and refuse to give up. That's the sort of obsessive nature that we think drives success, but can also drive a level of neurotic time wasting that is completely contra- contradictory to success. No, I, I think it is a it is a huge paradox, and my wife will even sort of like call me out on like, look time to put it down. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Like, and then literally you would think that like I'm solving world peace sometimes where I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I got to find the screw yeah, to fix this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with the dynamic. <laughs> yeah. My husband has like two engineering degrees and you know, yeah, he walks down to change a light bulb and suddenly he's like rewiring the house. And I'm like, wait, what? I thought we were watching, you know? Right. So it is a interestingly like or misunderstood thing of, of of ADD, which a lot of entrepreneurs have, is that it's actually not that you can't focus. It, the hyper focus, it's that you can't switch focus. So when I do something like like I, I will ignore someone or not want to be distracted because I know that if I get pulled out of whatever I'm doing, then I sort of lost that ability to do it. So I yeah, that hyper focus is a real asset. But I, I don't I actually don't do well at being distracted. That's the issue. I don't do well at being distracted because I don't switch very well. Right. You're distractible because the yeah. 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 I think that's a really important thing to point out about ADHD and people often don't understand that. The hyper focus is its own problem. Problem, but it's most people's superpower, right? The ability to to just zone in and 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 deal with it. But I, I've actually I don't have uh, HD, but it actually helped me a lot to even my wife or whatever, where it will come in and sort of I'm working on something and she'll stand there and want to talk, and I'll be like, I'm really deep in editing this right now. Like like let's do it later, rather than to half pay attention. Right? My old my old mode would have been to pretend I was listening not listening rather than saying, I'm actually really deep in this now and I want to finish it. And then I'll come kind of have that discussion. One of the like lines that is been almost a marriage saver for us is, is for us to walk into a room and say, is now a good time for me to have your full attention? It's a good strategy, by the way, when <laughs> yeah. you call someone or when you talk to someone or even like, I, I say it a lot, like when we have a scheduled call, like, Hey, is this still a good time? Cause it's like, no, you know what? I'm really stressed or this, like, great. Like, let's do it. Let's do it some other time. Yeah. Let's do it another day. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you a little bit about high performers in parenting. Cause I think that's the, you know, like those of us who, you know, start out in the world with ambitions and are building companies and building, building careers for ourselves sometimes can get thrown for quite a loop when we uh, decide or welcome children into our lives because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I think a lot of the skills that are really, really helpful to achieving as an entrepreneur are like not super helpful to being a great parent. So have you experienced? No. Yeah. yeah. More a great child. <laughs> yeah. Have you experienced that or how have you, you, you have three children who are kind of middle childhood age, right? Like early teens. Yeah. From 15 to 
uh, sorry, 16 to 11. Okay. So you've had some time doing this. Yeah. How have you, how have you, have you tried to do both? I try to get, I think quality over quantity to what I was saying before in terms of kind of jumping in and, and doing the stuff that I want to do. There are similar things, I think, to some, I actually think parenting can learn from some of the organizational best practices. Like I think what I've seen from high performing families is that they have a vision and they have values, right? The values actually take the place of rules. We try not to have a lot of rules for our kids, but we do have values. And when we talk about things where they, we have rules, but the rule is almost in service of a value, right? So we say, look, we want you off your phones by our family values are, are happy, healthy, respectful, responsible, and kind. And so we say, we need you, we want you off your phones and we, in our room by 930 because we think that's healthy. It's good to wind down. It's good to get sleep. Like it's enough by that point. Like it's not, we try to tie the rules to that. It's not a, it's not an arbitrary rule. And, and I think, so rather than having a lot of rules, like those are the things that are really important to us. So when they cross those lines, like if you get angry about everything, then no one can differentiate between you made a mess uh, at dinner versus, you know, you, you violated the trust value that, that the family has. So we try to really focus on that. The other thing is like, I'm trying to help each of my kids become the best at what they want to be. There's not a standard plan. You know, I want to understand for them kind of what they want, what they like, and then how can we support them in that? My new parenting methodology, which was adapted by something I heard from someone else, because I do think people err on way too much on, on either side of the spectrum. I'll say what it is and I'll say the spectrums, which is you can have anything you desire as long as you're willing to do what's required. So we're very honest with our kids. I think that some people are way too much, oh, you can be anything you want. You can be an astronaut and this and that. And that's true, except those things require a ton of work and in, in, in what it is. Or on the other side, they would say to someone, you can't do that. You're not smart enough. You're not going to be an athlete or whatever. Like that to me is really harmful. But I think to a kid who wants to be a professional athlete, you know, it's fine to say, hey, look, but the people who are professional athletes by this age, here's what they were doing. Here's how much they were playing a game here, day. Here's the practice schedule that they had. Here's a roadmap for what that path looks like. Do you, do you want to do that? Do you want to do that? Because I'm not, you've got to want it. I don't, I don't want it for you. So we've, we've tried to expose them to everything early on, like a lot. Like you got to play a sport and finish this season or you got to finish it. But like if they didn't, as soon as they stopped liking it or complained about practices, it was like, look, but you, cause you don't know, you have to be exposed. So I think you got to push through some discomfort to try things. But as it gotten older, like, look, you want to complain about soccer practice? Like I don't need you to play soccer. It's not for me. So it shifts with the development of the child. Yeah, I, I, I think we tried to push them to try a bunch of things. And I think in anything you're trying for the first time, you have to get by some discomfort. So you've got to just finish the first lesson or season or whatever. But we've never pushed them to do stuff that they didn't want to do. I, I, I mean, you're a psychologist. I mean, you could write books on the parents on sidelines these days. You know, just all of their failed high school athletic endeavors being pushed on their kids. And it's just, it's almost unbearable being at youth sports these days. Like I, I'm a big believer in sports and the value and team and all that stuff, but they've got to want it. They've got to enjoy it. They got to like going to practice. So, so for each of them, you know, if my daughter's talking about, oh, I want to go to an Ivy League school, hey, this is what it takes. Like, here are the grades, here are the SAT scores, here are the things that people do. 
Here's the activities. Here are the letters of reference. Yep. Here's what it is. And, and I'll help you with it. And I'll support you with it. But, it, but it's got to be your goal. It can't be, it can't be my goal. So again, I, I love this term capacity building, which is so much of what we do in parenting and what we do in business and what we do in leadership, which is helping to expand someone's ability to do the things that, that they find valuable, that they enjoy. Yeah. And showing them, you know, part of that is, is look, they're probably a little young to understand their own core values, but, but showing them what that looks like or improvement. So we actually recently had like our financial advisor did sort of a little tutorial for the older ones on, they had some money from um, sort of events that they have on stocks and sort of a video and made them sort of research some stuff. And, and, and one of my kids was just not into it. <laughs> didn't want to do it. Didn't want to, the other one was really into it, but then we went through it and stuff like the, he, he got into it. Like, and I think he, he just was frustrated. He didn't understand it. But once he understood it, he's like, Oh, well, I should I be looking at this and that. And I think that to me is how you have this notion of a growth mindset where, where you understand that like, I can learn this, I can get better at it. Like, it's not that I get it or I don't get it. Right. It's absolutely possible for me to expand into this demand that's ahead of me or into this challenge. Exactly. With the right amount of support and practice and time. So, you know, we're kind of like getting ready to close out 2019. Do you have rituals around the change of the year? I mean, not necessarily New Year's resolutions, but do you, do you use the end of the year as a sort of a calendar time or a calendar cue to help review and reset and yeah i do because I do, there's actually there's a i don't believe in the new year's resolution but there's a lot of data around that we're very motivated around first first of the month first of the week first of the year like we all want to reset so let's start again <laughs> so for me it's sort of the recalibration i sit down i look at the goals from last year i look at the long-term goals i look at like what worked this last year what didn't and i sort of build up personal, professional community and business kind of plan for the next year. Those are the four dimensions that are often, I think, used. I think they're most helpful on planning to make sure that you're kind of balanced. So I will, I will do that. And, and one of my goals for next year, my overarching goal is to do less. <laughs> it is actually <laughs> to have fewer goals. A like I looked at my vision board from last year, we do them as a family. And I was like, just way too much stuff on it. Like I, with a book launch this year and some other stuff, I, I went too hard, probably borderline uh, sometimes to, to where I got myself in trouble to the story in the book. So important for me actually is to kind of focus on health and rejuvenation and, and, and family um, and sort of inverse some of my goals next year, but to really have fewer. Because what I found is you get done, like last year, even around the book, I, it, I sort of applied the domino theory, like here was the goal. And then what are all the dominoes that have to fall to get the goal? And, and that was really helpful. So if you, if you figure out the core couple things and then, you, and then you say, wow, those are... You reverse engineer them. Yeah, you reverse engineer them. You're like, wow, that's big. But I said, look, I want a bestseller book. Well, what does that take? Well, it takes X, selling X thousand from pre-sold before speaking. It takes this many appearances on this. It takes this many... I was like, oh, well, how do I do that? And then I, I broke it down. So that was a helpful process to sort of both pick the goal and then sort of reverse engineer the, the key components. Are you glad you did the best-selling book path? Yeah, I think, look, it's, it's, it's a catch-22 with a book. Um, you would want a book to stand on its own merits. But like many things in the world, if no one knows about it, like it, it doesn't make much. Uh, it, it can't stand. Yeah, so I, I think, yeah, it was important to, to get it out there, to have that, that, I think, that credibility. But I don't want it to be about marketing the book. I want 
happened to be that the book was good enough that people liked it, that they found value in it, that they bought it for their teams. So I do think one of the the, the sort of unknown things on writing a book is like the marketing is is honestly harder than writing the book in some cases. But it's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, didn't make a sound. So you're, you're kind of on your own to get your book out there. So you got you to gotta do that. Well, I think it's a fabulous book. And I, I love the... I'm an academic, but I, I write for non-academics. So I think you have a, a nice way of just really summarizing lots of wisdom and lots of good ideas into a really easily accessible, highly palatable form. So it's designed for societal ADD. It's only an hour. Uh, you can read it. You can start getting into the actual to do's. Yeah. So, you know, I think for folks who are listening, who are looking for something to help support a reset or a recalibration at the, the change of the year that the elevate is a great option. And, you know, I've really have valued our conversation in the time that you've, uh, you've given me this morning. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Just last question. What, yeah. What are you doing next? Uh, next this year. To simplify. But... Uh, yeah. So we're, we're, there's not much left. So we're just, we're working on planning in our business for kind of next year. Personally, I'm actually doing that leadership thing I spoke about and, and then sort of kind of sailing quietly into into vacation. It's been a it's been a crazy fall. So I'm I'm trying to actually take the time off, go spend a bunch of time with friends and family over break and uh, come back rested and, and ready to run for 2020. All right. Well well happy uh, happy cocooning or hibernation, I guess. Yes. <laughs> in, in Minnesota we call it Haiga. Yeah, you call you call it winter. Yeah, yeah. We call it like stay home, <laughs> sit yeah. by the fire, drink a little bourbon. <laughs> exactly. So. All right. Well, take good care, Bob. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.